I have this almost voyeuristic uh, need to see what's below, right? Because you go to the beach, you go to the ocean, and you see the surface, and it's beautiful. We all love sunsets, you know, the light on the islands. It's gorgeous. But if you put on a mask and you just dip your head an inch or two below the surface, then you can see both. <laughs> you can see what's below and what's above. And if you spend enough time in the water, you're going to start seeing amazing things. So the creatures that come from the depths and come close to the surface to feed uh, at certain times of day. Uh, animals like marine mammals that need to breathe close to the surface. Uh, schools of fish, you know, that gather close to the surface. I mean, it's to me the opportunity of taking people, audiences by the hand, people who will never get a chance to scuba dive or snorkel in some of the extraordinary remote corners of our oceans and giving them a glimpse of what's below the thin blue line that separates what we know from the mysteries of the ocean beneath. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to be learned from everyone's story. If you're ready to join us in the hustle, listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end the creative journey is all worth it. Christina Mittermeier is a marine biologist, conservationist, a Sony artisan of imagery, and a National Geographic photographer. Christina founded the International League of Conservation Photographers and more recently co-founded SeaLegacy.org with her partner Paul Nicklin. Her new book, Amaze, explores our relationship to the earth and the ocean and draws attention to both the beauty and the plight of our planet through her extraordinary imagery. In this episode, Christina takes us to remote corners of the globe, including below the thin blue line to swim with and photograph the largest animal on the planet that is three school buses long. She explains how social media has changed everything for conservation organizations. And even though Christina has nearly 1 million followers on Instagram, find out how she too deals with imposter syndrome. And finally, Christina encourages us all to create the planet that we want to live in. This is We Are Photographers with Christina Mittermeier, and this is her story. My first experience starting an organization was the International League of Conservation Photographers, and to this day, that's one of my most proud achievements because it was a way of really extending an invitation to thousands of photographers out there who wanted to do something for um, nature, for the, not just for nature, but for, for the issues that they photograph and didn't have a platform to do it. So the ILCP is still to this day a powerful, prestigious organization with very talented photographers. But for myself, you know, I didn't want to be just an administrator. I really wanted to go back to my roots as a marine biologist, as a photographer, and Sea Legacy was my way of saying, you know what, I'm going to carve a piece of that, the methodology that we created for the ILCP, and apply it to the oceans. And so Sea Legacy started just with my partner, uh, who just happens to be one of the most accomplished underwater photographers in the world. 
and myself. And it was just our very humble contribution to try to shine a light on the oceans. And we were not expecting it to become a, really a galvanizing rod, as, <laughs> really as a, a call to action to protect the sea. And it's been amazing. The response uh, has been incredible. We started posting on Instagram and Facebook almost just, um, you know, as a photographer's yearning to create a portfolio. Uh, but a following started growing out of that. And it has just built momentum. So today, uh, Sea Legacy is one of the largest followings for any conservation group. Paul Nicklin is a photographer that has the largest following of any photographer in the world. And I am soon to become the first female photographer to get a million followers on Instagram. So what we realized is that we're telling a story that is compelling a lot of people to wonder, you know, what's happening to our oceans and how can I help? I've always known that when you empower uh, a, a group of people uh, to create a groundswell around an issue, it usually has amazing results. And the trick is to actually get the message out to a lot of people, get people excited, you know, to, I mean, politicians do this all the time. The first few times that, that I did it was when I was president of the International League of Conservation Photographers, and we would bring, you know, a group of photographers to create a portrait of an area that needed protection. And then we would turn all those materials to the media for free, along with the personal firsthand stories from the photographers, which are always so engaging. And that, you know, created a buzz around uh, campaigns like uh, the protection of the Flathead River Valley in British Columbia, the protection of the Great Bear Rainforest also here in British Columbia, but um, in other places as well. And I started to see how photography is it's a great way to get a front page for a newspaper. <laughs> you have a photograph along with a compelling story. And then came social media and that changed everything. Um, I saw it actually for the first time in action with the Arab Spring and the election of Barack Obama. And you start realizing how people galvanize around issues that they're passionate about and how photography can be an invitation to join those movements. It might have to do a little bit with losing yourself in a creative moment, but um, my fellow photographers are going to relate to the experience of being behind the camera. And it just feels like you're in a tunnel looking at something really amazing and there's no space for fear or cold or hunger and I think as creators as creatives we all strive to lose ourselves in that moment and of course it can be a little dangerous because you can lose track of what's happening but um, you know I, I follow my gut a lot and if my gut's telling me that it feels good I just lose myself. Nothing puts you in your place as, a, as an earthling, as a citizen of this planet, as getting in the water with a whale. My fellow photographers are going to relate to the experience of arriving on location, getting in for the first time, beautiful things happening and then you just think you know oh my god this is going to be easy this happens all the time <laughs> well that was the experience you know first dive first day i got into the water and there it was a beautiful blue whale if you can imagine three school buses parked you know one behind the other um that's about 85 foot uh, animal and 
this one was probably about that size. And there it was in clear water with beautiful rays of light coming into the ocean. And it just gently flipped its tail, it got illuminated and I thought, wow, <laughs> never seen anything so beautiful. And I thought it was gonna happen over and over again and you know, it didn't, it's really hard. Blue whales are the largest animal that has ever lived on our planet. They're very powerful. They're in the Azores feeding and they're feeding on one of the smallest creatures in the ocean. They're, they feed on krill. So they dive about uh, a mile into the dark, deep, you know, wonders of the ocean. They feed for about 15 minutes and they come out and breathe. And that's your chance to photograph. For every minute they spend underwater, you, they take about one breath. But because they're so powerful, you know, they might dive here and they may surface, you know, a mile, a mile and a half away. So you're chasing them with this boat and it's tricky. You know, you don't want to chase them so hard that they get scared. And at the same time, if you don't get there in time, they will dive again for another 15 minutes. So it's a little bit of a cat and mouse game and you want to be respectful of these animals. Uh, the water is murky because it's productive. So yeah, it was hard. But I will also say this, you know, tourism around whales, swimming with whales and whale watching is increasing. And it is our choice as consumers to pick a place where it's done right, where it's done respectfully. So my humble suggestion would be to go to a place like the Dominican Republic, the Silverbanks, where it's been done for 30 years and you will experience that spiritual moment that you're looking for. I always say, you know, because people criticize tourism, but the alternative for economic development is oftentimes much worse, right? <laughs> if you're not bringing money from tourism, you are going to have to bring it from somewhere else. And it's usually extractive industries or oil exploration or whatever. So I think tourism is a wonderful alternative uh, to develop economies around nature and around indigenous cultures. Uh, but it has to be done responsibly. And that's our responsibility to do our homework and make sure we're channeling our funds, our money, our enthusiasm towards those operators. The first time that I realized that it had incredible power was in, in Maui, in Hawaii. And it was a crowded beach. And I put my head underwater and I could hear whales singing. <laughs> There's a symphony going on underwater. And if you just, you know, take the, a moment to dip yourself in, in this blue champagne, <laughs> you will find an exhilarating experience. You know, it's, um, it's not just the images we create, it's the conversations we have around those images. In my photographs, because I do a lot of portraiture, I always try to portray people with dignity and to try to tell the, the story of others in a way that invites, you know, a, an inner dialogue about, you know, we're not that different. Even if somebody looks very different, we, at the, at the end of the day, we're all the same. We're all humans. We all have the same experiences of being born, of belonging to a family, to, to a country, to a community. We share the joy of giving birth to our own children and marriage and the sorrows of death and loss. We are very similar. And so I want my photographs to say, you know, we're not different. We are very alike. It's difficult to be an immigrant. It's, it's not an easy experience to uproot yourself and come to a different country. And um, especially being Mexican, you know, it was not easy. And I felt 
I felt like I was not wanted, like I was not welcome. I, I wanted to hide my Mexican, my Mexicanness um, by playing up my whiteness. And over time, I realized that that was a mistake, you know, that if I look back into Mexican history, there's been amazing artists that have come before me, people to look up to, like Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo. And I wanted to, you know, secure a place in my own country as a creative and as an artist. And that forced me to come out of my, you know, shyness about being Mexican and just celebrate it, you know, as a, it's, I'm very proud of my Mexican heritage and it's something that I want to use to have this conversation about the contributions that immigrants make to an economy, to a culture, to our communities. You know that it's it's easy to um, to generalize and say that, you know, all the people from a country are bad or, you know, what, what have been women called? We've been called rapists and thieves and, you know, that nothing good comes across the border. And it's not true. It's not just Mexicans, you know, it's people from everywhere that come with education, with ideas, with innovation, with a different way of seeing the world. And it's, it's as simple as this. If you have a plantation of a single type of tree and a disease or a virus or a bug comes, those trees have no way of protecting themselves, you know. Every single one of them is going to be infected because they're all the same. But if you have a forest where you have many species, many different types of plants and animals all living together, there is an inherent resilience that allows that forest to thrive. And communities are no different. You need all the languages, you need all the religions, you need all the points of view to create a thriving community. We tend to think about girl power as, as these powerful CEOs in Wall Street and, you know, women in politics breaking the glass ceiling, but women are empowering themselves everywhere. And because I get to travel and visit people that live in remote communities, I get to meet a lot of strong women. And I, I just love the power that females bring to their families, to their communities and to the planet. And so girl power is all about celebrating the efforts, small and big, of women around the world to make not just, you know, their own families and communities a better place, but the whole planet. Something that I've noticed a lot as I try to engage and mentor and invite more women to uh, enter into the world of outdoor nature, adventure photography, uh, I think first, and this is where Creative Live is awesome, uh, a lot of women have... Um, it's just like this instinctive rejection of technology, right? They figure that cameras are too complicated. They don't want to get into understanding uh, the ins and outs of how equipment works and what the technology can do. And so that's my first challenge to women out there. You know, it's not that complicated. It's actually quite simple and uh, it's the first hurdle. The next hurdle is what I call the peanut gallery. As women, since the time that we're little girls, we are indoctrinated into an attitude of fear. You know, we are told that certain things are not for women, that girls should be afraid of doing certain things. And whenever you try to step outside of your comfort zone, that peanut gallery starts talking to you. You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't do that. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be dangerous. You know, my peers are not going to approve, you know, what it's what it feels like to be dirty, to sleep on the ground, to... Uh, 
you know, get bitten by mosquitoes and have to pee in the woods. You know, that's the next hurdle to just say, you know, at the end of every great adventure, there's an awesome shower and a lovely cup of tea. But you have to actually be willing to put yourself outside of your comfort zone to to engage with the discomforts of nature. I love, love, love that there's so many efforts to try to liberate women and girls from those paralyzing conversations inside our own heads. To this day, I, I look at, at the work that I've done and I think to myself, you know, people are about to find out I'm a fraud, you know, that I have no idea what I'm doing. And I have to remind myself that that's not true. So I have a technique. Whenever the peanut gallery or the, the monkey brain starts talking to me, I close my eyes and I imagine the peanut gallery and I walk them all to a cliff and I just toss them over. Because <laughs> it's, it's paralyzing, you know, to, to have this conversation inside your own head that's so self-defeating. By far, the most remote place that I've had the opportunity to spend time underwater has been in Antarctica, where I participated in an expedition for National Geographic magazine that's going to actually be published in November. And so I spent a lot of time in the water with extraordinary creatures, uh, ranging from crab-eater seals to penguins to cormorants and the most extraordinary, perhaps, leopard seals, which are large seals that feed on penguins in some of these remote islands and they're very smart they're very curious they're very big they have lots of teeth and they like to play with their food so <laughs> you know uh, Paul Nicklin has actually detailed the experience that he had a few years ago with a female leopard seal that kept bringing him penguins and I had the opportunity to watch him interact with these leopard seals and the penguins in you know for days and days and days it was actually incredible and it was great, you know, to be a female photographer in a group of expeditioners who just all happened to be men. And they were amazing. You know, uh, when you think about equality, that's how I was treated. Never as a weaker part of the expedition, never as a lesser team member. I was assigned to do the split photography for, for the story. Every photographer dreams of the day when a publisher approaches you to do a monograph, a retrospective of your work. And because I have imposter syndrome, I never thought it was going to happen to me. But when Tenois approached me uh, to do a retrospective of my work, I really wanted to, to use the opportunity to share some of these passionate themes in my career, in my life, and my work. And so the book is divided into two sections. The first section uh, is called The Water's Edge because as I look back to the thread of my career as a photographer, it's been surprising to me that 90% of my pictures have been made at the water's edge. It's just a recognition of how dependent humans are on rivers and lakes and the ocean, and just what a beautiful space for, for us as humans that is. So the water's edge is the first part of the book, and then the second part of the book is an idea that I've been nurturing for a long time. 
and it's, it's still difficult to articulate it, but I call it enoughness. And it really is how do you create a sense of fulfillment in your own life without having to rely on external sources of happiness. And so as I think about enoughness, many, many themes come to, to my mind and many stories that I've experienced in my work. The most important one is that, you know, we have a really weird relationship with money in Western society. But money is like a river that flows through our life. And sometimes it comes in big torrents, you know, it pours in, and sometimes it trickles through our life. But it doesn't matter, you know, that's not the important part. The important part is how you use the flow of your money to um, achieve some of your biggest ideals and commitments. You know, it's how you spend your money, who do you support, uh, your charitable contributions, your enthusiasm. You know, it's not just money, it's all our resources in life, our influence, our uh, you know, are volunteering. It's how you direct that to create the planet that you want to live in that really creates that sense of enoughness. And enoughness just means being fulfilled, knowing that you're enough, that you have enough and that you can contribute enough. I love this visual of, of the little blue planet going you know, around the universe, so big, so lonely. And here we are in our tiny little spaceship. There's nowhere else to go. And this little bubble has evolved for millions of years to provide everything we need, clean water, clean air. And the part that people in, you know, the politicians, the corporations forget is that our entire economy, all the well-being, everything we buy comes from nature at some point. And it's great to say we're going to create more jobs by wholesaling nature, you know, by saying that there's not going to be any more protection. You can rape and pillage it all for the short-term creation of more economic growth and jobs. It's not gonna last very long and it's very short-sighted. And there's nowhere else to go, you know. I love, I love Elon Musk and I love the idea of going to Mars, but guess what? You know, eight people are gonna go and the other eight billion are gonna stay here. <laughs> you know, it's easy as environmentalists to scare the hell out of people, <laughs> to say it's all doom and gloom and it's going to hell. But unless you show people that there's a way forward, that there's still solutions, that we can still do so much and give them an opportunity to participate and then show people how their small contribution has a huge impact, then you know people feel empowered and hopeful instead of desperate and defeated. So the Tide as an online community is not about giving, but about participating and people donate to our work on a monthly basis. They basically subscribe to the Tide. And by me being members of the Tide, they get a lot. You know, they get to come on expedition with us virtually. They get to participate on raffles to actually go physically on an expedition. They get behind the scenes content. Uh, they get special tutorials on, you know, techniques and photography, not just from Paul and myself, but the other members of the collective. And more importantly, they get to use their voice uh, their participation in important campaigns. And we've had actually some amazing wins. We created a campaign to try to stop uh, drift nets, uh, these enormous nets that, are, that catch every creature in the ocean off the coast of California. And we gathered something like 120,000 signatures in two weeks. And that was enough to convince the California legisl legislature to um, consider this bill seriously. And it looks like it's going to pass. We are going to ban drift nets using the power of the tide. And so, yeah, it, the tide is just 
an invitation to help us turn the tide. If you want to find out more information about Christina or Sea Legacy in order to help turn the tide, go to sealegacy.org. Every voice truly counts in protecting and conserving our precious oceans. A huge thanks to Christina Mittermeier and Sea Legacy for contributing to this episode. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. At Creative Live, we believe that there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com. If you haven't already, subscribe to the We Are Photographers podcast wherever it is that you get your favorite podcasts. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.